Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, Brian, take it away. (laughs) Okay, all right, good to see everybody, sort of. Uh, Last week, Shannon began covering the David and Bathsheba story, and I had shared last week some proverbs regarding the consequences of the folly of adultery, and we talked about can a man scoop fire into his lap without getting burned, and uh, also the powerful proverb about how one's shame will never be wiped away. Also, I didn't mention this one, but in 917 of Proverbs, you you were asking the question, why why would somebody who had wives want another one? And the whole idea is, it says in Proverbs 9:17 that stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. So there's always that forbidden fruit idea that we see even in the Garden of Eden. I mentioned also that there are consequences. Nobody gets away with anything and uh, how our souls are diminished when our character is compromised. Now, I just want you to know that over the last few years, I've spent a, quite a bit of time actually studying the lives of David and Solomon for a book that I'm writing. And my research has also led me to study the prophetic books of the Old Testament, too. And one of my favorite takeaways is how the Old Testament stories are vivid illustrations of how wisdom and folly are depicted in vivid high resolution. Now, today I'm going to deal with the blessing of rebuke, the blessing of rebuke. So let's jump into 2 Samuel 12 and see how the David and Bathsheba uh, saga plays out here. If you've got your Bibles open, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, Uh, we see that through Nathan the prophet, God speaks to David, and he says this. He says, I gave you the throne. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, which is the United Kingdom. And then there's an intriguing point that God makes through Nathan. And this is really interesting, the plaintive voice of God almost. If all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. And I can't help but wonder, what was that even more that God had in mind? If David hadn't compromised his integrity... What did God have in store for David? So in Proverbs 1.23, God said, If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. And so I wonder, how much do we miss out on when we cave in to foolish choices and we let down our guard, which we talked about last week? Now, I want to give a little caution here, because in any group this size, the odds are that a number of you know all too well the devastation of broken trust. Whether you are a victim or whether you are a perpetrator, Scripture is never meant to beat you up, to discard you, and to leave you in shame. And if that's what it does, my instinct tells me that that is another voice, and it's a malicious voice that is misusing God's Word. And so please remember this principle that not every use of the Bible is scriptural. Not every use of the Bible is scriptural. So Proverbs presents us with guardrails to prevent us from going off the path and deep into the ditch. David had those guardrails in his life, but he disregarded them. He let his guardrails down. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us to guard our hearts because it's the wellspring of life. But David didn't guard so well. And as we pick up the story now, he's been in the ditch for about a year since that night on the palace rooftop. So here's the deal. Proverbs is definitely about making the right choices. It's wisdom to keep you out of the ditch. But the question is, what happens when we find ourselves in the ditch of mistakes? 
perhaps David, it's been a year now, perhaps he felt like the ditch would be his new normal. His conscience probably was bothering him. Something was plaguing him. But the good news is that Proverbs is also wisdom for the ditch. In other words, there are always on-ramps within reach of anybody who wants to get back on God's path. And so Nathan, the prophet, he's kind of like the AAA, the American Auto Association. Because whether David realized it or not at that time, he was about to receive some crucial roadside assistance to get him out of the ditch. Nathan, the prophet. Nathan's name is from the Hebrew root, which means gift. And Nathan's mentorship was a gift to David. We see in this passage that the gift Nathan provides is that of rebuke. Now, had this prophet lacked the courage to speak up, all he would have had left to give to David is the gift of flattery. After all, it is a dangerous thing to tell a king that he's wrong. Remember how Jezebel had Elijah running for his life? And look what happened to John the Baptist when uh, uh, he spoke into King Herod's life. Proverbs 28, 23 says this, He who rebukes a man will in the end gain more favor than he who has a flattering tongue. And so while Nathan was actually putting his life on the line to correct David, I don't think it was David's favor that he was hoping for, so much as Nathan wanted to be faithful to uh, the call of God on his life as prophet. Because ultimately a prophet's task is to impart wisdom. And one of the toughest types of wisdom to bring to the table is that of correction or rebuke. If you're familiar with the story, the first several verses of chapter 12, you know the little parable about the, the one little cute lamb. I'm not going to tell that story. I'm sure Shannon will later. But the parable tells us how Nathan framed his rebuke. It says also in Proverbs 25:11 that a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. You see, truth is golden, but it can be sullied by how we present it. How often have we had the right message that someone needed to hear, whether it's our kids or a spouse or a friend, but we've had the wrong words or we've had the wrong tone of voice or we've had the wrong attitude because it's about form and function. Nathan doesn't storm in and rant and rave. He tells David a parable, a cute little parable, and guess what? The king takes the bait. Way back when I was in university doing my undergrad, I took several English literature courses and I had the privilege of taking one unique course, and it was called the King James Bible in English Literature. And I'll never forget my prof, how he waxed so eloquent about how riveting the story of David and Bathsheba is, especially the way it's told in the King James Bible. Especially when Nathan says, near the, at the end of the parable, he says, Thou art the man. This powerful, dramatic moment is depicted in those four powerful words, and it's interesting because in the Hebrew, it's only two hard-hitting words. We know that God's word is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And guess what? Nathan's words were a sword within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew that Nathan had a sword. And next, the prophet, after he tells him that thou art the man, he pulls no punches. He doesn't hold back on the list of serious consequences that are going to play out over the next years. And we may not normally see it this way, but David's response reveals that he was a man after God's own heart, despite his egregious failures. Imagine that we were in that room that day as Nathan tells the parable and then says, Thou art the man. Nathan laying it all on the line, and now he's finished with his words. And between what we read in verses 12 and verse 13, perhaps there was a dramatic pause at that point. 
And if we're watching, we have a moment to wonder how David is processing this scathing rebuke. We are fearful, perhaps, for Nathan's well-being, for the king could respond with, with his vindictiveness, and he could order Nathan's death. He had every right to do that as king. The intense shame one sometimes feels when read the riot act can fuel that kind of an outburst. After all, Proverbs also warns us that whoever rebukes a man incurs abuse. It also says, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. That's in chapter 9. But guess what? David, the prodigal son, comes to himself and he realizes the ditch he has been slogging through is a place of folly and he decides to return to the father. He says, I have sinned against the Lord in verse 13. And that is an indication of a heart returning to the Lord. And so what was the on-ramp to which Nathan drew David's attention to get him out of the ditch? It was the statement of God's forgiveness. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die in this ditch, David. God is going to be with you. And David's confession that follows was utterly sincere and it ignited his repentance. Now, to be sure, there was no turning back the clock. He couldn't undo what he had done. And David's reputation resume would always have that stigma paragraph, would have the scarlet letter, at least the resume that we read, but not the one that God reads. Because it says in the Bible, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed my scarlet letter from me. Being a person after God's own heart has never been about perfection. An upright heart sometimes does wind up upside down after a hard tumble into the ditch. Mistakes are made, we create chaos, or we are thrown into chaos by someone else's choices. But God has always known what to do with the chaos. He knows how to create, and he knows how to rescue. It's not helpful to shame yourself or to others, nor to live in the regret of what might have been if you didn't make the mistakes. Because wounded hearts can be healed by his grace, prodigals are always welcome back, now, as I conclude, let me give you a little homework for those who have nothing to do. This is homework that will help cultivate being a person after God's own heart, especially if you have the odd imperfection. And the homework is this. Check out Psalm 51. I'm sure Shannon's going to address that, right, Shannon? Mm-hmm. It's David's song of repentance, especially the line, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that's the gift of wisdom for the ditch. Thank you. So good. I hope you write down all those proverbs um, because I think once you, we go through the story, it's so awesome to go back and really read through all the proverbs that he brings up to us, the wisdom that goes along with this beautiful story. Last week, we did go through the story of David and Bathsheba, and we ended basically in 2 Samuel chapter 11, Uh, We finished through verse 13, really discussing it. And so we're going to pick up tonight together, starting in verse 14. So bottom line, David uh, could take Uriah's wife and he could call him back for war. But one thing he couldn't do is he couldn't make Uriah compromise his integrity. And that must have been frustrating for a man of power not to get his way. I mean, he set up every scenario he could to try to cover up his sin and to cause Uriah to go home so that he could sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. And so uh, the timing might not be exact, 
but people would be able to speculate, oh, this pregnancy must be her husband. Remember when the king called him home to find out what was going on at war. But uh, David couldn't do it. He couldn't make Uriah compromise his integrity. And so we start in verse 14. It says this, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then back away that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were more valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Wow. It's this same integrity that Uriah had that David counted on, is it not? The fact that Uriah has such great integrity uh, allowed David to write a death order for him and have him carry his own death order to Joab, the commander. And so his uh, integrity was completely trustworthy for David. The note said what? Send Uriah to the front lines where the fighting is the worst and then back away from him so that he could be struck down. Listen, it wasn't unusual for David to send a messenger to the king to tell him what was going on. That would be usual. First off, what was unusual is that the king should have been out to war, right? But the king wasn't at war. And so it wouldn't be unusual for Joab to send a message to David, letting him know how the battle is. Let me tell you what would be unusual. What would be unusual is the fact that, uh, he sends Joab back with this message saying, listen, you need to put him in the front lines and you need to put him where the fiercest fighting is. That wouldn't be unusual. Joab, I mean, Uriah was David's top 30 fighting men. He would be in the front lines. He would be where the fiercest fighting was. What was crazy is that he said, back away from him. In other words, leave your brother behind. Back away from him. Abandon your brother. I just wonder what Joab was thinking at this moment. Let it sink in. How weird is it, number one, that David called Uriah out of battle, one of the greatest fighting men that Joab had, to come back to Jerusalem and just say, hey, what's going on? How's the battle? And then when he finally sends him back to war, he sends him with a letter that is sealed by the king, and inside, Joab hears, put him to death. What must Joab be thinking? I just kind of wonder if he figured it out. I wonder if Joab was thinking about Uriah. I wonder if he knew Uriah's family. I wonder if he knew how stunningly beautiful Uriah's wife was. There's one thing I do know. I do know that Uriah knew David, right? He knew David. And I'm wondering if he's starting to speculate what could have happened. Another thing I bet is I bet he thought, well, there's one thing. He won't be holding Abner's death over my head anymore. Do you remember that story? Shake your head yes or no. Remember, Joab is the one who, when David was trying to unite the kingdom, and he made a deal with Abner in order to get the tribes of Israel to come under as a united kingdom. If you remember, Joab hated Abner's guts. Do you remember why? because Abner killed his brother. 
and he could not believe that David made a basically an agreement with Abner. And so what did Joab do? He waited until Abner left the city. When he heard about it, he chased him down and he killed him in the street. And bottom line, David covered it up with this big uh, national funeral on behalf of Abner. So now you have Joab who has been sent a letter saying, hey, I want you to put Uriah in the front lines and I want you to put him where the fiercest battle is and then back away so that he could be struck down. Listen, he doesn't question, he obeys, but he's thinking, yeah, something is going on here. And to be quite honest, I'm wondering if he thinks, huh, now I've got one up on the king. He owes me a favor. So Uriah was killed in battle. Let me tell you something that I thought was really interesting um, from some research I did. There is a French medieval uh, rabbi, and he's, he's known by the acronym Rashi. And he says this, he, he does a commentary of the Talmud, okay? And this is what he says. David did not engage in adultery because it was customary during the monarchy of the Davidic line for a man to write a conditional writ of divorce for his wife when he set out for war, which stipulated that if he were to die in battle, his wife would be retroactively divorced from the time of his departure for the battlefield. This practice was meant to prevent women from becoming chained, women barred from remarrying. Since Uriah has prepared such a writ of divorce for Bathsheba and he was killed in fighting, she was no longer a married woman when David had sexual relations with her. Furthermore, since Bathsheba was then unmarried, this, act, this act, action of intercourse constituted the act of marriage. Oh my gosh. So when I read that, to be honest, it made me kind of chuckle because I don't think for one second I can put this in the mind of David right now. Um, but what I find interesting is I wonder if the historians in their attempt to um, almost rescue their beloved king uh, wrote this. And it just reminds me how far will we go to justify our sin? How far will we go to justify our sin? Uh, the bottom line is the historians, the rabbis might can find a way to justify David's sin, but I truly don't think at one point David can. And so it continues in verse 18, it says, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, which by the way is another name for Gideon? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on his head from the wall and then he died? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Man, does Joab know David, doesn't he? He knows exactly what's going to happen when he sends a messenger back to David and describing how they lost this battle and that what they basically did was they instigated, by the way, the Ammonite city was already under siege. What does that mean? It was surrounded. They were done for. 
All Joab had to do at this point was wait, and he could starve them out. But because of the note that David sent about Uriah, Joab sent troops, including Uriah, to where the toughest fighting men in that city would be, and they basically instigated a battle. So when these Ammonites came out to fight, they fought them, and when they pushed them back, it seems like in ignorance that uh, the men of Israel pushed them back too close to the walls so that the archers could shoot arrows and kill them. So it wasn't unusual, as I said, for Joab to send word back to David for what was going on in battle. But what was unusual is that Joab, this seasoned commander, would make such a stupid mistake. And so Joab knows exactly how David is going to react. And so he tells the messenger, basically, don't freak out when you go back and tell David this story because he is going to react badly. It's gonna make him mad because this was a stupid move, a stupid strategic move. But this is what I want you to make sure you tell him. Make sure you say, but Uriah the Hittite has been struck down. And so as we read through uh, verses 22 through 24, that is exactly what happens. David gets mad, he goes on a rant, um, and at the end of that rant, basically, and by the way, you don't interrupt the king when he's having a rant, he let him finish, okay? But once he was finished, he made sure to say, Uri Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And lo and behold, bam, when David heard that, right, bingo, the magic words, the rant stopped and the consolation began. There's a couple of things I want you to recognize out of those verses. Did you see in verse 23 where, or 24 where it says, and some of the king's servants are dead? One of those being Uriah. So what do we see? This action didn't just cause the death of Uriah. It caused the death of other servants, other soldiers, other fighters. So as David is attempting to cover up his sin, uh, listen, Uriah is not the only one that is going to be affected. He's not the only one who's going to die. Not to mention the fact of what it does to Joab. Jo Did someone say my name? Oh, I don't know. Joab um, has compromised his character. He has compromised his reputation in order to also be able to cover up this sin for David. And so now he gives this consolation. Now this part is tough to swallow, right? In verse 25, it says this, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. I would have loved to have been in that room because I would have loved to see the rage in David as he is just ripping Joab for what a stupid strategic move. How can you be that dumb to go up that close to the wall to get people killed? And then the minute he hears that Uriah died, man, his head spins around on his shoulders and he has a completely different face. And he says, oh, you know, go, I, I get it. I understand. Go back and tell Joab, hey, stuff happens. 
you know, and war stuff happens. The good, the bad, people die in war. Don't let it bother you, Joab. So he tells the messenger, go back and console Joab, like encourage him. Okay, listen, we all make mistakes. Now go ahead and siege and take over the city. Um, I think it's interesting. Look at the play on words. Brian actually showed me this yesterday. Look at the play on words in verse 25 compared to verse 27. Look at that if you've got your Bibles. Do you see it? Basically, 25 says, say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you, right? But then what does verse 27 say? Verse 27 says, at the end of it, but the thing that David had done, what? Displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Listen, this may not have upset David, and he's telling Joab, don't let it upset you. But who did it upset? God. This thing displeased the Lord. So it goes on to say in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We talked about that. Bathsheba mourned Uriah. You know, last week we talked about um, what her um, responsibility was in this action. Um, and so some question her sincerity here. But to be quite honest, I'm not sure it's my place to question. And the more I got to thinking about this the past uh, week, I actually thought about the time that I have spent speculating what her involvement in the affair was. And honestly, I'm not sure it's any of my business. It bugged me. I started thinking how many hours last week just my inquisitive mind was thinking through every scenario and how one minute I thought, ah, she's in on it. Are you kidding me? And the next minute I thought, no, she's not. She's completely innocent. And the next day I would think through it and I'd be, oh, totally, totally new. Come on, really, Shannon? And then the next week I'm like, no, I don't think so. And all of that time I spent speculating, I thought, hey, maybe it's none of my business. Maybe that's the reason that the details of all of that have been left out. Maybe that's why the information wasn't given. And I just started thinking, I wonder how many times in a scandal, well, we aren't given all the information because frankly, it might be not our business. I just wonder how much time we waste speculating what really happened and we start to fill in the blanks with our own story when we have no evidence of it at all. I don't know. I couldn't get that thought out of my mind. And to be quite honest, I sympathize with Bathsheba. Because can you imagine the fact that thousands of years later, people are still speculating about you? I'm gonna let you let, I'm gonna let that sink in because I'm looking at your faces and seeing if you even heard what I said. That you have a story in your life that you not only had to live through when you were alive, but this story has lived on for thousands of years and thousands of years later, people are still speculating about what you did or what you didn't do. And I was just, wow, 
And I thought, well, the bottom line is this. I think God settles it. At the end of the day, I think God settles the issue by placing Bathsheba in the line in the genealogy of Jesus. At the end of the day, he honors her. So whether she was culpable, she experienced God's grace. Whether she was innocent, she experienced God's honor. I believe that God had the last word on the story of Bathsheba, and I'm going to let him have the last word. And to be honest, I am going to trust that her mourning was legit. I'm going to trust that she actually did mourn her husband. And you know what? I don't know, but I think there was plenty out of the entire story to mourn. And so I am going to give her that, that she was mourning. But one thing that to me is really worth my attention and actually more shocking is the lack of David's mourning. Look in the story. Do you ever see one word about David mourning Uriah? Uriah was one of his top 30 men who proved to have a great integrity, who proved to stay true to the king and to God. And we do not see one ounce of David mourning him or speaking about him. And I started thinking about that. That is unbelievable. David is the great lamenter, is he not? Do you remember the lament he wrote for Saul and Jonathan? He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. He goes on and he talks about Saul and Jonathan being beloved and lovely. And he just keeps saying, oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is Saul who chased him down for years to kill him. Not to mention the fact, do you remember Abner that I talked about earlier? The one that Joab killed in the street? I mean, even if it's not sincere, what did David do? He wrote a lament for Abner. He made it a big national day. It literally says in scripture that the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. Do you realize that in chapter 10, it also says that when the Ammonite king, who by the way, that king was an ally to David, that when he died, that David sent servants to give him honor. And to be honest, that's why the entire fight changed. That's why we're fighting the Ammonites is because when David sent these servants, they were humiliated and sent home. And David's like, oh, no, you don't. And so that is what has now started this whole war with the Ammonites. But David is the great lamenter. And yet in this situation, you do not see him say one word or have one feeling of regret or mourning over the death of Uriah, this man of integrity, and one of his greatest fighting men. It literally just says at that point when she's done mourning that David sends for her, takes Bathsheba, and makes her his wife. I cannot stop thinking about that. What was that like? I mean, honestly, like, how did that look? I wish we were in the room together because I would love to hear what you guys have to say about that. You might even want to chat about it on the side. But I mean, what in the world? To me, there's like two choices here. It had to, number one, maybe look really sketchy, okay? Because all of a sudden, Uriah dies. David then takes Bathsheba, this beauty, to be his wife, who, by the way, is pregnant 
possibly showing by now for sure words got now I would imagine and so now he takes on a a wife who is pregnant I would be thinking wait a minute wait a minute okay David just married Bathsheba yeah did you hear that yeah wait a minute Bathsheba's pregnant he just married a pregnant Bathsheba yeah wait a minute who's the dad hasn't Uriah been at war oh why is David marrying Bathsheba wait a minute now how did Uriah die does that sound familiar so it could either have caused incredible speculation or maybe on the flip side maybe David looked like a hero depending on how you spin it dear lord in our fake news we could probably spin it any way we want and it would look like whatever story they wanted but maybe they worked it to where uh david actually looked like the really good guy look at david uriah dies in battle what a great king what a great friend he is going to take uriah's wife into his harem and take care of her and provide for her i have no idea but I kind of wonder also, um, has he just become so arrogant and so prideful that to be quite honest, he's not thinking through any scenario. He's just doing what he wants and he thinks who's going to question me. Have you ever seen people of great power and wealth reach a place where they really feel like they can do anything they want without any question or any uh, recourse? And so they just make that decision. I don't know, but I will always have questions about that, which brings us to chapter 12, which Brian has uh, walked us through with some of the Proverbs. Um, I truly believe that from chapter 11 to chapter 12, we can be safe to say that about a year has gone by. And so um, let's look at this together. Chapter 12, it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Whoo, Nathan. Nathan uh, was not only a prophet of God, but I believe he was a friend of David. Um, if you remember Nathan, Nathan is the one that I, I just think loves David. He's the one that when David wanted to build the temple, if you remember, Nathan says, hey, buddy, do all that's in your heart. Why? Because he trusted the heart of David until God had another word to say. So he loved David, but he loved God more. And so God picked the right, man, the right man at the right time, and he sent him in to David. Now, I want you to imagine going in with this job to the king, 
the greatest judge in the land. All judgments came to him final. I mean, life and death was in his hand. Nathan is brilliant. He comes in with a story. And it's not just any story, but it is a story that is asking the king for a judgment. And so at the end of the day, David is going to be the one to make the final judgment on this situation. David is the one who is going to prepare the noose. And to be quite honest, he's going to stick his head right in it. Um, so David, he basically tells him the story and he says, you decide. And he says what? This man deserves what? Death. He is enraged by the story. Don't you think it's interesting that he picked a story about a lamb and David was a shepherd? I just wonder if David had a favorite little lamb back in the day and he could completely relate to the story, but it enrages him. He gets sucked in. You do realize that's what happens in stories. That's what happens in parables. Um, it's the same when Jesus, uh, you know, was talking and saying, love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And the attorney says, well, who's my neighbor, right? What does he do? He tells the parable to describe who the neighbor is. Stories draw us in. This is exactly what happened to David. And so David is enraged by the story and he makes a judgment. The man deserves to die and he needs to pay the poor man back times four. Really interesting. Listen to Romans 2, 1 through 5. You may think you can condemn such people. What people? People that you feel are lesser than you. So if you were Jewish, possibly talking what? Gentile, right? You may think you condemn, can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be, be revealed. What's amazing about that part is the cup that was being filled up, we didn't even drink. Who drank it for us? Jesus. So as chapter two is talking, or actually Romans one talks about the wrath of God, Romans chapter three talks about the restoration or the redemption of God. But the message is clear, right? Um, he's like, David, be very careful. Be very careful what you're judging someone else about. Why? You're doing the very same thing. He's going to tell him, you the man right? I love the fact that David says that the man has no pity. It also means compassion. That word also means to spare. So as this has enraged David, let me ask David, 
Have you shown compassion? Did you have pity? Did you spare? I love the fact in uh, Romans 2, in verse 4, it says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? Let that sink in. Because if you grew up the way I did, I don't think very often we thought about the kindness and patience and love of God turning us from sin. I grew up thinking the fear of God turned me from sin, right? But here's the thing. Fear will only work if the fire's turned up high. Do you know what I mean? Like once it settles down, what do we tend to do? Go right back to doing what we were doing before, right? If you're scared of your parents and the heat is on and you're grounded, you're going to be walking right for a while. But once the heat lets up, am I the only one that lived like this? I need you to smile at me and be expressive. There you go. As soon as the heat died down and the eyes were off, if there had been no change of the heart, what happened? You went right back to doing what it was you were doing, right? It is not the fear of God that beckons us to repentance. The Bible says it's the absolute love of God. So the question is this. Won't our kindness and our love towards others do the same? If it is the kindness and the patience and the love of God, he's like, do you understand how patient God is with you? Does it mean nothing to you? It is that very thing that draws you to turn, to repent. And if that's what works for God as his image bears, won't our love and kindness towards others do the same? I think it is really interesting that um, David becomes so enraged by this story. How often do we become enraged by things that we see in others that are actually alive and well in us? Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed how mad people get, how fiery people get about certain things and the reason they get so dang fiery about those certain things is what? Most of the time, it is that same kind of thing that is their problem, is living in them. And so this is even before, like David doesn't know he's the man. This is drawing him in, and he is completely enraged. Isn't it interesting that when we see a story like this, we crave justice? Oh, David is craving some justice right now. He wants justice. But do we crave it when we're on the other side? Is justice a negative word, by the way? Is justice a negative word? Doesn't it just mean to set something right? To set it right. And isn't that also kind of the idea behind biblical peace? Biblical peace means to restore to make something whole, make something complete, and to set it right. In God's great justice, did he not bring us peace, wholeness? Did he not set things right? You see, justice is not a negative word. It's a good word. Some days we crave it when we're on the positive side, but man, when we're on the negative side, it's a whole different story. 
And then comes the words, Nathan said to David, you the man, <laughs> you are the man. Those four words, I cannot help but wonder if his mouth dropped. I can't help but wonder if his heart stopped. I think it did. His heart sank. And to be honest, I believe the dam that is inside of David is about to break. I thought about his year in between. And I think, listen, it took a lot of stuffing of emotion. And it took a lot of playing a role, putting on a mask to be able to deal. Remember, this is a man after God's own heart. He is a man of passion. And he had to put those emotions away. He had to put on a mask and he had to run a country for a year. He had to do that. I truly believe he built a dam, but I don't believe that that's all that was happening that year. This is my personal opinion. I believe God had been preparing him and I believe that there was more going on underneath the surface. And we're going to get back to that in just a minute. I think there was stuff, there was a battle going on in David's heart through that year. And it was being prepared. It was, it was preparing him to hear those four words. All right. But through the story, it goes like this. Uh, chapter 12, finishing verse 7, it says, Nathan continued, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that were too little, I would have added to you much more. Brian addressed this, but bottom line, God is saying, David, look what I have given you. I anointed you when you were a punk little kid that you weren't even a twinkle in your dad's thought. He didn't even line you up the first time. You were out there with your sheep. I delivered you from Saul. Do you remember those years? The cave of Adam, uh, the fact that your family got taken, all that you battled through. I delivered you. Not only that, I not only gave you Judah, I gave you Judah and Israel. You are standing over a united kingdom. I have given you all the house of Saul. I've given you all of his wives. I'm not even going to go there with y'all with the whole polygamy thing, but he is saying, listen, you, this, what is happening is not because I withheld anything from you. This is not a situation of lack. And bottom line, he says, I have given you everything. I don't know about you, but it reminded me of Genesis. Does it remind you of that? I'm going to tell you, there is so much parallel in this story to me in my mind with the story in Genesis, because listen to these words out of Genesis chapter two. I'm going to look at eight and nine and 15 and 17. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. In verse 15, it says, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. We didn't need to be idle. Have we learned anything about that? Work is a blessing. And keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, 
you will surely die. God had given them, God had given David everything. What was the problem? The problem was they took something that did not belong to them. This had nothing to do with lack. I think the point is in the next verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 9. Man, I'm not even going to get through a lot of this stuff, but I'm going to push y'all to the limit, okay? Verse 9 says this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. That word despised says we've despised the word of the Lord. The message version, version says this, that you have treated with contempt. Here's what that means. It means that you consider someone or something to be unworthy of respect or attention. Okay, let me say that again. He says you've despised the word of the Lord. You have treated it with contempt. You have considered someone or something to be unworthy of respect or your attention. What is the problem? It's not lack. David has forgotten his position. David has forgotten that he is prince and God is what? King. David is prince and God is king. Hear this. From the beginning of creation, God desired, for lack of a better word I put, our partnership. He has wanted to partner with us. We are to partner with God to reflect him as image bearers. And although sin marred the image, God still desires our partnership. Even in our brokenness, through trust, God can still use us to bear his image. But it only works in partnership, trust, dependence. The nation of Israel was to be his special nation, and David was their leader, the king that would represent God and lead the people. He would lead the nation. And what was this nation in charge of, by the way? What were they commissioned to do? To usher in the Messiah. What does God want from us? Partnership, relationship, to bear his image. And listen, my friends, I couldn't get this off my mind today. What has he commissioned us to do? We're not ushering in a Messiah. We're ushering in a kingdom. We are ushering in his kingdom as image bearers. You see, the problem is when David was a servant, he depended on God. Did he not? He depended on God. God's every word was a lamp into his feet. God led every step to keep him alive, to give him provision, to give him protection. He depended on God. He kept his eye on God. But the problem is now he is in a place of power. He's taken his eyes off of God. Why? Because his empire is a well-oiled machine, people. I mean, it can run without him. We see that. Joab is very capable of running this army and David staying home. 
But the fact is David has forgotten his position underneath the king as the leader of this nation. And so he has allowed his power to give him ease. And he has allowed this position to afford him what I would call a privacy. Have you noticed how powerful people of position have the opportunity for a lot of privacy? A lack of accountability? And because of that, he took his eyes off of God and instead, right, in this idleness, he put it where it didn't belong. And we looked at this last week. He saw, he lusted, he inquired, he took, he lay with her. Does that remind you of someone else we talked about in Genesis? How about Eve? In all of her abundance, at one point, she took her eye off. And she placed it where it did not belong, and she saw, and she lusted, and she took, and she ate, and she gave. They took what did not belong to them, and sin progressed into killing his brother. Do you still see the themes of Genesis running through this? The commander-in-chief allowed Uriah to die at the hand of the enemy. And when he was done, what was his response? Stuff happens. Stuff happens. He had no regard for Uriah's death. Does that remind you of anybody else out of Genesis? Cain, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Stuff happens. Don't let it upset you. In war, this one dies, that one dies. You see such a callous. No word of mourning comes out of David. How calloused he has become. Why? I truly believe he's got that dam going. And if he allows himself to stop for one minute and acknowledge the death of Uriah and all the pain accompanied with it, that dam of protection and denial and justification just might break. And I'm going to tell you, I believe he has completely shut down his feelings. He is fighting not to feel. I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a situation where in order to survive or achieve or to do what you need to do, you just have to put those feelings behind a dam and you have to just keep on going. And what happens is when that pressure builds up, if there is anything that injures that dam, that cracks it at all, all of that pressure comes going through that crack and the only way you can describe it or I can describe it is anxiety because you don't even know what in the world it is. Is it anger? I don't know. Is it fear? I don't know. Am I sad? I don't know. It is coming through and I truly believe that the words you are the man broke through David's dam and I am telling you it started to pour forth. The question is, how can one so passionate, think about all of his song, think about his laments. This is a passionate man. And listen, what made him so great was also the thorn in his flesh. He is a passionate man. What made him become so calloused? Well, let me ask you, how in the world did Adam go in, seems like in a minute for saying, oh my word, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Oh, she's awesome. 
And in the next minute, what? This is all her fault. He throws her completely under the bus. He blames the woman that God had given her. Here's the deal, bottom line. I have so much to teach y'all about this. Sin has personal cost. Do not be fooled. Sin has personal cost. And I think Brian said it well last week. He said, it dims your potential and it compromises your character. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, take care, my brothers. Be careful, my friends. Lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that you don't trust. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Come on, encourage each other. We all got this crud. We all have this tendency, right? To pull away from God. So encourage one another. Why? Encourage each other as long as it is today. We'll do it every day. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does sin do? It can take a heart like David's, a passionate heart, a heart after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, and it can harden it to the place where David was able to take what did not belong to him, compromise everybody around him, put this man to death, and literally not speak one word of mourning about him. He became callous. And although David seems to have become so outwardly hard-hearted, I cannot help but wonder what is going on inside this man who is a man called the man after God's own heart. Could this be what was raging inside of him in Psalms 32? We'll end with this today, but listen, you better get back next week because this is only good. What is coming at the end of this is so good. I cannot wait to teach it to you. So, Psalms 32, many believe it, and in your Bible, it'll, it'll say it's the muscle, I don't know how to say that, Brian, but whatever, of David, which that word, I believe, means instruction, so David is instructing, um, which reminds me of Romans 15, 4, which says, basically, our, every part of Scripture was given for our instruction, Right? so that we can have endurance and the encouragement of scripture so that we can have hope. So David living through this is sharing, in my opinion, what was going on possibly beneath the service surface, this battle within this year. Okay. So listen to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I can almost take a deep breath there. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. He's finally breathing, but now he's going to think back. Look at this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Literally, he was wasting away. I can picture him not eating, not being the same in agony, internal agony and pain. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever felt that? The heaviness, the heavy hand of God upon you, that conviction. My strength was dried up 
as by the heat of summer. He had no vigor. David, who was, you know, he'd stop and play the instrument and sing. I just picture him being a very passionate guy, being fun-loving. I mean, he could get mad, but man, could he love deeply. I mean, I just feel like he literally had dried up. Like, what's wrong, David? Where are you, David? Had the man who could belly laugh now, all he had was anger or nothing? I just wonder what he would have been like. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What is he saying? Repent. Repent now. Get it out now. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Trust me, he's saying, you won't drown. You think you will. Get it out now. Repent now. Trust God now. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, but not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or bridle, or it will not stay near. Listen, he loves you. Come back to him. Confess now. Let it out now. You will not drown, but don't be like a stubborn mule that he is constantly having to pull back. Anybody relate to that? I'm the one. Like, always having to put a bridle in your mouth, always yanking you back. Don't do that. Come back. Allow the love of God to beckon you to repentance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Listen, do not be fooled, right? God says, Actually, he says that word. Don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And we're going to see this when we come together next week. So far, we've seen that David's sin, his lack of repentance. Listen, it's going to have a cost, no doubt. And the first cost we're seeing is a personal one. It's cost him. Next week, we're going to get together and we're going to see, oh, it didn't just cost him. Because I'm going to tell you, sin is just not personal. It's about community. And what we do doesn't just affect us. It affects our entire community. God knows this. And that's why he says, listen, I know you. I know exactly what you're capable of. None of it surprises me. I understand. But what I'm trying to get you to understand is I love you. And if you will partner with me, if you will follow me, I will be able to use you as an image bearer. Why? Because just like the Jewish nation ushered in a Messiah, you are my people who are going to help usher in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to see next week that um, what we do sets a course for consequences. Um, but we're also going to see this. We're going to see God's beautiful grace right in the middle of this. Because do you remember what David said should happen to the man that did this in the story? He should die. What should have happened to David? Because of what he did. Adultery, murder, deception. 
The wages of that was death. Yet God in his great love, he said, I have taken your sin away. I have set it aside. You will not die. We're going to look about, we're going to look at that. We're going to see, well, where did he put it? What happened to it? Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.